0: Good morning. It's good to have you join us this morning for worship. If you're new, my name is Jeff Coulter. I'm a member here at the church and also the lead pastor. And we've been in a study through the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, you will be helped to turn there this morning. A number of years ago... My wife and I were in Scotland, and we visited a number of towns, and in one particular town we visited a church in the town of Stirling, and the church's name was the Church of the Holy Rood. Seriously, that was the name. History says the church on this site was built in the 12th century, the oldest part standing today is a section adjoining the tower which dates from the 15th century, but in 1656, Following a fight, a quarrel between two of the ministers of the church and their parishioners, the town council had then built a partition wall right through the middle of the church, thus forming two congregations in one building, the East Church and the West Church, each then with their own minister. They built a wall down the middle of the church. One church met on one side; the other met on the other, and the situation continued from 1656 to 1935. Two different congregations, two different pastors. I also read this week of a church in Dallas that became divided. The rift was so bitter that each side instituted a lawsuit seeking to dispose the other and allow them to have all the assets, the property. The story, of course, hit the, the newspapers because it went to court. And the court then decided, rightly so, that they were not to, to actually give uh, to hear this case. And so it needed to go to the, the denomination of this church. And so it did. decision was made and it was awarded real estate to one side. And the, the losers of the lawsuit withdrew and formed another church, which is good American church planting. It was reported in the Dallas newspapers, no doubt with some delight, that the church court had traced the trouble. Of the source of the fight. And the trouble began when, at a church dinner, an elder had been served a smaller slice of ham than the child seated next to him. Take note, they take ham portions seriously in Texas. <laughs> well, we can sit and laugh, right? I mean, it's, it's hilarious that people come to this point, but they're true stories. Disunity. Thomas Schreiner, in one of his commentaries, one of the many books he's written, said smooth relations in the church can be preserved if the entire church adorns itself with humility. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Unity is impossible if each of us in this church family is only out for ourselves. If each of us is promoting our own cause and each is seeking their own advantage, Paul gets to this section of his letter to the Philippians with an emotional plea for them to be like minded, to share in mutual love and harmony of spirit and oneness of purpose. And that's the call for us this morning because that's where God has us in his word. So here's the main idea. As Christian citizens of God's kingdom, we're called to be united in humility towards one another. As Christian citizens of God's kingdom, we're called to be united in humility towards one another. And there's three points that we'll cover here this morning. Christian citizens, and we'll see that in the text. Christian unity and Christian humility. So I'm going to read the, the passage here. First, Philippians here, chapter 1, verses 27 through Chapter 2, verse 4, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll launch it. Paul writing says in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God there has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind do nothing From selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and we ask that you would teach us this morning. God, I ask that I would be able to step aside and allow you to speak to your people this morning of how great importance it is for us as a church family to be un- united under the banner of the gospel and that we would display humility in our lives and our words and our actions not only in in the church here that represents you to our community but in our in our homes in our workplaces. God we ask that you would change us this morning that you would make us more like Jesus. We ask this all in his name. Amen. So first we see the Christian citizens. We'll explain what that means here. After Paul explained where, where he was and what the Lord is doing in the beginning part of chapter 1 and his life in prison, he turns now to exhort the church and how they are to live in this world. And we will see the, that the issue of citizenship will bind this section together, uh, th- verses 27 here in chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And Paul is urging the members of the Philippian church to stand firm as citizens behaving in a manner worthy of the gospel. He read that in verse 27. Only let your manner be of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so when, when Paul writes your manner of life, it's, it's, it's translated from the Greek word meaning to have one's citizenship. In fact, if you're reading the ESV, you might see a footnote at the bottom that, that says that we're to only behave as citizens worthy. And so the issue here is Citizenship. And it's a big deal because he's he's talking to those that are part of a Roman society, and Roman citizenship was a big deal. So there's a reason why he's bringing this out. But later in chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is instructing them here to behave as citizens of heaven. Paul is actually making an assumption here. Their manner of life should be worthy of the gospel because they're citizens already of heaven as Christians. The person who trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation has been given membership into God's kingdom, and thus their conduct should reflect someone who has been transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so the gospel was to be adorned that way by the Philippians as they lived out their heavenly citizenship as members of one body, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, I have a tangent, and I think this is important, because this connects in some ways understanding our citizenship to church membership. If you haven't picked up already, this is a book on Partnership. And as we see and understand as a church, it's connected to your connection here as a church family. There's probably some confusion about church membership. You know, when you, when you sit down in a membership interview with elders, it's really a confirmation that you're really part of the kingdom of God. That's the main thrust. As best as we can tell as humans when we hear your testimony. The main thrust of the process of, of, of becoming a member of a local church is sharing the gospel, the gospel and sharing your testimony of following Christ. But most assuredly Christians are citizens of God's kingdom, but church membership is the process of confirming that that they're citizens of God's kingdom. We don't make citizens of God's kingdom. It's the process where you sit before the elders of God's church and give testimony of a new life that God has given. It's a confirmation of what has already taken place. And it's meant as an encouragement, as an affirmation for the one applying. It's not meant as a test. And so as elders, we do not make Christians. I want to be very clear. As a church, we don't make Christians. God does. God does the saving. But we recognize Christians based on their testimony in their life. So let me give you an illustration of this. It's borrowed from someone else, but I'm going to apply it to an, an, an aspect of my life. Some of you know that our family lived in Sweden. And when we moved there, when we were moving to Sweden, my wife was pregnant, very pregnant, with our third daughter, Charlotte. We landed there in, oh boy, it's been so long ago, May, and, and Charlotte was born in, oh dear, August. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> After she was born, we received this weird-looking Swedish birth certificate, okay? But for us to ever fly back, to ever come back into the country, we needed to have a U.S. birth certificate and a U.S. passport, okay? Now, you need to understand, there's no citizenship rights for Charlotte in Sweden, okay? But as soon as she was born to Katie and I, she was an American citizen by law. We're both citizens of America. She became a citizen. But that means nothing to the gate agent at the airport. I could show them pictures. I could show them all sorts of things to say, hey, listen, she was born to us. Let her in. It means nothing. They, they would say, I'm sorry, you don't have the right documentation. You need to be able to, to show us proof. We needed evidence. And so what do we do? We got an appointment at the U.S. Embassy. The weirdest thing to go into an embassy in a foreign country because you're in the Swedish culture the whole time and you walk through this embassy and you're like, yeah, I'm literally in America. There's like vending machines for American fat, our food and stuff. And when you got the, 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 pa- the passport, we had to start that process. But what's an embassy? Embassies are all over the world. An embassy is an institution that represents one nation inside another nation. It declares its home nation's interest to the host nation, and it protects the citizens of the home nation living abroad. Now, we didn't have the right paperwork for Charlotte, but we needed to submit it to them and allow us to get a birth certificate and then a passport. The embassy did not make Charlotte a U.S. citizen, but it affirmed it. And even though Katie and I both knew that Charlotte was born to us, both of us U.S. citizens, we had no standing to declare it before the nations. We needed the embassy to declare it. And yet the embassy's affirmation gave us then the ability to continue to live in Sweden with Charlotte and afforded her the rights uh, as a citizen of the U.S. The embassy represents another nation or kingdom, but it doesn't make citizens. It just recognizes them. And the same is for the local church. We are an embassy of heaven. We've been given the keys of the kingdom, as Matthew 18 says. We do not make people Christians here. We only affirm and recognize that they're already Christians by the work of God, that they're already citizens of heaven. And church membership is that affirmation process that encourages Christians who give testimony of a regenerated life. And it communicates to the membership, to the the church here, that this person is continuing to live as a citizen of heaven. And the elders sit down and affirm that. And then by your affirmation as members, you're affirming it too. Can you see how encouraging that is to someone else? To hear and to give testimony of their new life in Christ and then to be affirmed by everyone else, we see that in your life. We see that you want to follow Christ and you want to live in obedience to him. And so Paul is very clear here for us of our citizenship, and he ends there, and we'll get to it, Lord willing, in a number of weeks. In chapter three, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is heaven and God's work that makes citizens of God's kingdom. But because we're citizens of God's kingdom, Paul then continues of what we should do, how we should live. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or i am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Friends, there is absolutely nothing in the Bible about being a lone ranger Christian. If you think being a Christian and living the Christian life is meant to be lived all by yourself. You have no leg to stand on in the Scriptures. The New Testament constantly reaffirms. There's no, there's no verse that say you just got it all by yourself. Just go do it all by yourself. Just pull your bootstraps up. Go live your life all on your own. There's never the assumption in any of Paul's letters that as Christians were to walk by Christ and follow him all by ourselves. It's always assumed and taught that to be a Christian means you're connected to a church, to other Christians, and they help you walk following Jesus Christ. We help one another. Paul says that they're to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. As Christians, we're called to stand firm against attacks on the gospel as we draw on the inner work of the Holy Spirit in our lives with other believers. We are bound to Christ through the gift of the Spirit. We recognize there's only one Holy Spirit, and the Spirit who dwelt in the Lord also dwells in our hearts. The same Spirit dwells in all of our fellow members of this church as well. And we are here in the fellowship of the Spirit. We're to strive side by side. It's a, it's a word of teamwork, vocabulary of athletes and soldiers. It's, a, it's the heart of winning teams. Paul knew that the success of the church in, in, in Philippi depended on such teamwork, But the stakes were were much higher than athletics. And how can you be in, in one spirit together if you're all by yourself? And how can you strive side by side if you only have your side? So Christians are citizens of the kingdom, and we should be connected to a body of believers through the membership process that the church establishes, since the elders are the ones that will give an account. And we need to walk side by side for the faith of the gospel. When he says that there have, to have one mind striving together, it means that we're to share one mind. In fact, the word that Paul uses here is single-souled. He'll say it again in chapter 2, verse 2. We'll see it later, of being of the same mind. We're, we're to share one mind. The mind doesn't refer necessarily to intellect here, it's talking about being on the same page, moving in the same direction, having the same goal. And what direction are we going? It's for the faith of the gospel, he says there in verse 27. It was the faith it spread in growth, everything for which Paul was spending and being spent for this church. Paul's concern is that we don't stand firm with the prevailing values of this country or the country that we live, but with the shared single-souled value of our citizenship in heaven. Friends, heaven trumps earth. Heaven trumps America. Every time, And so every Christian should say in unison, I am a citizen of heaven first and foremost. That's what matters most. Today, my chief concern as I stand firm will be to strive side by side with other Christians for the gospel. And when we strive together, side by side with other Christians, we're able to face the adversaries of the gospel. Paul says there in verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for, your, for the sake of the God, for Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. See, once people realize and come to understand the gospel and that there's another king, their primary allegiance changes. Their first loyalty will be to the heavenly king that they submit under, which supersedes any earthly rulers. When we become citizens of heaven, our loyalties change. Our allegiances change. They have to. And when we're not of the things of this world. We will have different viewpoints, different goals. And because we're not of this world... We will have opposition from this world. They will feel it that we're against them. D.A. Carson written, has written for us, your change in character, your united stand in defense of the gospel, your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition that you must endure constitutes a sign. That sign speaks volumes both of the outside world and the Christian community. It is a sign of judgment against the world, That is mounting the opposition. It is a sign of assurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on that last day. Friends, do you realize that today, right now, in this moment, you are standing against the world because you're here, because you've gathered to worship God. You're in opposition of the world out there that has decided to—I don't know what they do on Sunday. Sorry, I grew up in a Christian home. What do people do on Sundays? Sleep in? Make puzzles? I don't know. I've been doing this my whole life. But we're in opposition to that. Simply because we got up, we got dressed, and we came to worship. And they will think we're strange. They will see us in opposition. My neighbors look at me weird in the morning on Sundays when I get in a car and drive away as they are just stumbling out to get their newspaper. They will feel that opposition simply because we're saying we're, we're following him and not anything else. And sometimes that opposition grows. It will grow. It will continue to grow until Jesus takes us home. And we will experience suffering, Paul says. The suffering that comes to us as Christians is not a sign of God's neglect for you, friends, but rather a proof that grace is at work in your life, God's grace. Paul would later tell Timothy indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know I've jokingly said this for years but maybe we should just put it on the sign and have it every week just come suffer with us. Because that's what the future is is us as Christians to follow Christ and not this world means we will suffer. We will be persecuted in some ways. And that's the life that every Christian has been called to. And as we suffer for his sake, we're formed and we're grown up as Christians. (laughs) Friends, we need to realize today overarching theme of this first point is that we hold dual citizenships. Most of us here, I'm guessing, are, are American citizens of this country. But the Christian now has a higher allegiance, a higher priority than this country and our behavior and how we live has to be shaped by heaven and not earth. We should be viewed as alien residents. And it should be easily recognized by the difference in our words and how we live our lives and the, and the sheer fact that we share characteristics with other citizens of heaven. And so when we gather on Sunday, we leave the world out there. We gather as citizens of God's kingdom. We step through those doors as Christian citizens of God's kingdom. So everything we do in this place, right here in this gathering, should represent that citizenship. From our prayers to our singing to the preaching of God's word. We have one king and his name is Jesus. And we've come to submit our lives to him and to give him the glory that is due every single Resurrection Sunday. Our allegiance is only to him And and as we gather in this place, it should be clear to everyone else that's not here that we submit our lives to him. As benefactors of the gospel, we're, we're changed and we're charged to be like Paul. We need to be gospel first people in all ways living lives worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit as we planted firm by the work of the Holy Spirit in grace, unity as one body, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, as we work together in mutual support and coordination to promote the authentic gospel in Edgewood and throughout the world. And so as Christian citizens of God's kingdom, we're called to be united in humility towards one another. So we're, we're Christian citizens first. Second, we're to seek for Christian unity. Paul begins the second chapter with an appeal to the church to remember what's happened prior, with what happened when they came to know Christ. And there's four parts to this appeal. Just in verse 1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. See, Paul pauses here to remind them of what Christ has done, because in verse 2, he's going to move to what they should do in regards to living with one another in unity. First, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and that would bring their memory back with the encouragement and strength that the Holy Spirit gave to them when he came to live inside of them. So there's any encouragement in Christ of what Christ has done, encouraging them to follow him. And then second, he says, we received comfort and love, which is talking about Christ's love for us and dying for us and sealing us with the Holy Spirit. This is the love that we sing about. This is the love we sing about this morning. Almighty, infinite Father, faithfully loving your own. Every Christian knows this love because they've experienced this love and they know security from God. The third is the memory of our participation in the Spirit. And this is talking about fellowship here. We have fellowship with God. He's going to talk about this, and he has already so much in this letter. The fellowship in the Spirit came to us, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians. He says, in one Spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. This is the reality of our lives as Christians. We have constant fellowship with the Spirit. And then last, he says, is the affection and sympathy, which more exactly is divine compassion and mercy. And we've received this from Christ. And so Paul, he's taking their minds backwards here, right at the beginning, and he's being very compelling to the Philippians. He wants their memories to go back and remember the gospel. Remember when God saved you. Dwell on that fact and what God has done for you and all the benefits that's come because you know Christ. And he wants them to dwell in this because he has a big ask of them. A big ask. He, he's pressed play on their spiritual memories because if you're in Christ and you've experienced comfort and consolation and you know the fellowship of the Spirit and, and you understand compassion and sympathy that you've received from Jesus Christ, then all of that needs to be shown to others if you're gonna be united in the gospel and if you're gonna be in ministry together. So verse one is this replay of the gospel. Understand who you are as a Christian. And then verse two he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul says unity, unity is the point here where I'm going. It's the main focus of the text I believe this morning. If we're citizens of God's kingdom, then we will seek to be unified as Christian citizens together. If there is any encouragement, any comfort and love by Christ, any unity in the Holy Spirit, any love, any sympathy with Christ, then we will seek to be of the same mind, loving one another, united in our spirits and thoughts for the glory of God. Very simply, friends, it does not honor God when His church is in disunity. And the unity Paul is speaking about is that of the mind, how we think. We need to note that the the thought begins with the words of the same mind and then ends with the one mind. That's that thought that, that both of which the intent is a unified purpose, a single goal. And what is the goal? What is the goal to be unified for? It's the gospel. The point isn't, as a church, that we're to all look the same or even act the same. If you visit a church and that's how it is, just run, because that's weird. Paul isn't arguing for boring uh, uniformity among Christians. He, he, he surely doesn't expect that we have the same taste, or wear the same clothes, or even listen to the same music. Friends, that, that's just odd. That's not what he's saying here. But we should have the same mind, the same inside motivation for life and ministry. And it's to please the Lord, it's to be gospel people. He says, and I love this verse too fill up my joy. That's Paul's plea as a father to spiritual children to fill up his heart with joy. How? by being united together for the glory of God. Isn't this true in your homes, moms and dads? Right? If you have more than one kid, do you really love disunity in your home? You think, I can't wait to get out of work to get home and have my kids argue. Please, Lord, let that happen. No parent says that. You're seeking unity together. And this is what Paul is saying here. Fill up my joy. How joyous it is, right? As parents, you come home and your kids are are working together and loving one another. You feel filled up with joy. And he's saying it to this church, but it's the same for us. It brings joy to us as elders who oversee the church here when we see our people living in unity together and not bickering and not fighting and not seeking their own way, but asking what's the best way for the church as a whole? Problems come so quickly into our relationships here at church when we lose sight of what we're here for. You know, as as a member of the church, it's not to get ahead, it's not to get a position, it's not to get a title, it's not to get recognition or a plaque someday. I promise the only plaque you will get is if we bear you out back and we'll put a thing in front of it. That's not the point here. We're here for the gospel. And we need to be thinking as as a unified church what's best for the whole. I got to tell you, as a pastor, as an elder, when I see that in people, I think they're tasked to be leaders. But if our mindset is always what's best for me, that's not unifying, that's the opposite. Every single ministry that happens here at our church has one sole purpose, one overarching goal. It's to get the gospel out and into every person that steps foot onto our campus. And we need to have the same mind to do that. And so the unity that Paul emotionally retells for them in verse 1, by recalling the supernatural realities that the Philippians have experienced when they receive the gospel, is that they themselves be gospel-oriented men and women. And how helpful that is to remind ourselves again. See, the, the, the unity Paul wants is not a plain togetherness, but a oneness charged up with a dynamic purpose, with a changed people, gospel people. Is that why you serve here? Is that why you serve if you help prepare communion or if you help serve communion, why do we do that? It's so that we as a church family can remember with our senses of the gospel of Christ's death for us on the cross. It's a gospel ministry. If you serve in the nursery, you ever ask, why? It's definitely not the most glamorous ministry you serve in, you serve there so parents can leave their kids without concern and focus on worship and a sermon that has gospel implications, Lord willing, for how they will live this week. If you serve as a greeter, why do you greet? So that new people and regular, that the members that come, come in from a weary world, welcomed by God's people to worship the risen Savior who conquered death and secured for us eternal life. Every ministry that happens here on this campus should be gospel focused. And so if we take Paul seriously, the gospel must be at the center of our thinking and at every level of ministry. Perhaps some of you have issues that you're facing right now with people seated in this room and there's disunity brewing. And it's simply possibly because you've come every week and you serve and you've forgotten what unifies Christians. It's the gospel. It's what Christ has done for us. And so maybe you're worried about issues of the color uh, on the walls or carpet or how the schedule should be organized or the order of service or how we should have meetings and how there should be run and and you're so worried about that, and you're so angst about that, and you forget the gospel. You forget what Christ has done in your heart and the heart of the person that you're striving against. And when we're more concerned with those things, the gospel is minimized and disunity grows. Friends, no one gets the church they want but everyone gets the church they need. God has placed you in this church family for your sanctification and He's placed you in this church family for other sanctification. And we need to rejoice in that. And you need to lean into those relationships. You need to lean into those struggles that you've had and perhaps... This week, spend some time with that person over coffee that you've had difficulties with and, and bury the hatchet and prize gospel unity more than the issues that you have. Paul says, and, and I echo this, complete my joy. Complete my joy of being the same mind, and the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Perhaps you're lacking joy in life and in ministry, not because of that person, but because of your response to that person. Perhaps because of an unwillingness to just deal with the issues that are there. This is real life, isn't it now? When Christians pursue unity in the gospel by submitting with one another, then our churches will show, will show clearly to others, that we prize Christ and the good news of the gospel more than being right. Is unity more important to you than being right? It's of great importance that we get this and understand it and work towards unity together as a body of Christ here at EBC. All disunity is really a gospel issues. And how will unbelievers who come into our midst be convinced that Christ reconciles us to God if we're not reconciled to one another? This is of great importance. Friends, this can't be put off. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I want you to celebrate the Lord's Supper and, and right unity with one another. So, in God's providence and God's grace, He's given you seven days. A lot of hours in those days. To be unified as a body of Christ, to work to that end. Paul knew that to be gospel oriented is to be others oriented. So, that leads us to our last point this morning and and perhaps this will help us as we seek unity. He says first, or the third point is Christian humility. Friends, the only way to find unity constantly in the church family is to work on our humility. The only way forward in our partnership as members of a local church is to think of others as more important than ourselves. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is being completely countercultural here. Not only then, but today. I would love to see this as a, uh, a mantra for a politician someday. <laughs> That's the person I would vote for. Think of others as more important than yourself. I mean, just think about change here in the church. I mean, this flies in the face of of the world's thinking. It's utterly strange to show humility in our culture. But Paul says this is the only way we're to live as Christians. This is the only way. Instead of pursuing our own prestige and power, we're called to live in humility, the loneliness of lowliness of heart which thinks of others above ourselves. The biblical understanding of humility is not pretending or groveling or even a pathetic lack of self-esteem, but instead it's a mark of moral strength and a brightness. It means we understand ourselves rightly. We understand our own insufficiency and entrust ourselves to God, and we ask for His help for us. Humility counts others more significant than ourselves. It looks out for the interest of others. Humility is outward looking. It's interesting, isn't it, how hard it is to be envious and, and have hatred towards others when we're actually looking out for them. Humility sees serving others as the pathway toward freedom and joy. When we remember the gospel and that shapes our lives and it shapes our thinking, then we can really serve others, seeking their welfare over our own. We can be second and we can be satisfied. The conductor of a symphony orchestra was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play? He responded, second violin. I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm, that's the problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. Friends, here's the secret of a genuinely united church. Its members count each other as more significant than themselves. When we value other people, we will live as Christians. When we value other people, we will see their needs as more important than our own needs. And we will never more like be like Christ than when we live in humility. There's more to say about humility, but if you keep reading this passage, and Lord willing, we'll get to it in a few weeks, we're going to get into that as the picture of what humility looks like in Jesus Christ. So, let me close, let me end here. How are you doing at living at unity with one another? Now I've been talking specifically about the church family as a whole, but how are you doing at living in unity in others, in other aspects, whether that's at home or at work? I I wonder if there are some situations in this room where Pride and selfishness are getting more playtime at home than humility and selflessness. And what are you doing to rectify those issues? Can I suggest that you find a friend here in this gathering, in the membership, and you say, would you read a book with me about humility? Because I'm stinking it up right now. And I need some encouragement along the way. And talk through that. Read it together and pray through the relationships where you're struggling to be unified and humble. I wonder how many marriages would, would grow and be transformed if each spouse would look out for the interests of the other more than themselves. I mean, this, this goes against our natural inclination, isn't it? I mean, who's the first person you think of when you get up in the morning? I think of me. I think of my back and how how well I slept. I think of a, you know, it just goes down the line of me, 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 me. It's really good to think of me. I'm the only one. You're all looking at me like you're crazy. (laughs) You're lying. Right? It's so easy. And Paul is just, he's just really turning everything on its head right here, right? Think of others as more important than yourself. What would happen in your marriage, friends, if that was the regular drumbeat of your life? I'm going to think of them as more important than myself. I'm going to think of them as more important than myself. How would it change? How would your life change? How are we doing with unity in our church family? Unity doesn't mean that we all agree with every opinion or view. Unity is not uniformity, like we all have to be on the same page. That's, that's not necessarily what unity means. It means even though we are different and we do disagree with things, we're still together in where we're going. I don't know if I'm shocking you, but as an elder board, we have decisions and we vote on that because the point isn't that we all agree and think the exact same way. The point is that when we leave that room, we're unified. Even if I disagree with what another elder says, I'm together. We're unified going forward. That's more important than thinking exactly the same way because that's never going to happen. I've been married 19 years, and my wife and I think more alike, but not exactly alike. You could pray for her that she would be better at that. It's just never going to happen on earth. But we can be unified in that direction, right? So being unified as church means that we're of the same mind, the same love, the same goal. And what's that mind and love and goal? Where's it going? It's the gospel, friends. That's why we're here to understand, to prize the gospel, to love the gospel, what God has done for us, and to share the gospel with everyone that comes in, that they understand this and what Christ has done for us. And if we're struggling in our humility, friends, there's news here. We'll see this in a few weeks. Look at verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We see the picture of humility when Jesus humbled himself to come live with us. And not just live with us, but then to die for us. See, it always comes back to the gospel. And friend, if you're here and you've never understood the gospel, if you've never repented of your sins and a trust in Christ alone, today is a day of salvation. And I would encourage you to come find me so we can walk through this glorious message of what Christ has done for us. It, it won't make your life perfect but it will revolutionize the way you think and the way you act and interact with others. And you will understand because of who Christ is and what He's done, what humility is in the life of a Christian. There's more I can say, but I'm going to end here. So uh, we pray now as we end and ask that the Lord would continue to help us as we walk and we leave this place to live lives in humility before Him, unified together. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for the privilege it it is to, to know you and to be loved by you and comforted by you, to have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God, I never want to take for granted the gospel, the good news of what you have done. I thank you for that. I thank you for the privilege I have to be a member of this church. United together with other like-minded members for the sake of the gospel. And Father, I do pray for those that are here this morning who have never turned to You and trusted in Your Son, Jesus. And I pray that they would place their faith in Him this morning and that You would give them new life, that You would give them the power to live a life of humility and unity with others. Jesus, You are the example of what humility looks like. And so we remember again of what you've done for us in the cross and we sing of that, this glorious gospel that unites us as one. Father, you deserve all of the glory for what you have done. And we thank you that we can gather and and understand your word and sing about you now and may you be glorified as we end our service in this time of, of worship and song and through the benediction and be dismissed. May you be honored and glorified in our lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.